Hello and welcome back. This is Phil Hill with Neil Mosley and Glenda Morgan with Online Education Across the Atlantic. And looking forward to our discussion today. And uh, hopefully, Neil, you're fully back into the new year, not just post-holiday rush, but uh, things are feeling normal at this point, or are you still in holiday mode right now? You know what, Phil? Things are feeling normal in that everything is kind of back running. My kids are back in school. My kids are being sick and ill and off school. So it, it really feels real. I'd like to just give a shout out to all the parents with young children <laughs> <laughs> right now, because it's been an interesting few weeks of uh, returning to school and uh, kids getting kids getting ill and dealing with all that. So it definitely feels real and very much post Christmas and New Year's for me, Phil. So yeah, yeah, back into it. And um yeah, it's it's good to be back into the podcast. I mean, like last week we were, I think, trying to uh, salvage some good news out of what seemed like a pr- pretty depressing picture for uh, higher education. Um, but I feel like, you know, there's been some interesting news that probably chimes with some of the themes that we talked about last week. So um, I don't know what you guys have been following, but I was interested in Canada announcing um, some restrictions on international students that I think that led to a little bit of rejoicing over here to be honest in the UK that uh, <laughs> we can have those students yeah yeah we're not the only one in the in, in the firing line of making weird decisions to limit international students yeah absolutely absolutely so that in a way bad news for Canada but good news for the UK maybe is is the is the story there. Um, I guess another thing that we kind of touched on last week, which I'd be interested to know what you guys thought about was um, sort of pending news around 2U. And I know nothing's been announced, but it seems clear that there's been um, some layoffs just from the kind of the noise around there. And I just wondered what what you had to, to, to say about that or whether what you thought or what you'd heard yeah. And I, for me, I mean, I think I had, there was a lot of noise online that we referred to uh, last week. I have to say not a whole lot came out of it other than layoffs that I've seen. But part of the thing to keep in mind, or I, I need to keep in mind, there are people who they want the company dead. And so I think we're also into the stage where people are trying to throw out rumors as well. So it may be there's still some huge news that comes out of it in the next week or so, but nothing huge that I've seen so far. I am expecting something in the first half of the year that will be momentous. Here's how we're handling the debt. We're splitting up the company. We're going bankrupt. We're pulling you know the rabbit out of the hat. Something big, but nothing nothing exciting that I've heard. Yeah, and no, I didn't. I haven't heard anything specific about to you but I did read an interesting write-up which was actually nominally about the the Pearson earnings call that went into some detail about Maryville University and how it had transitioned to to you but it sounded it almost like sounded like that was just a very minor thing because it talked about them trying to transition to running their own programs and, and that sort of thing so so that was an interesting article I read well, I, I've done in some of the interviews for my stories on uh, what's happening to 2U. I had uh, 
I had heard that independently, uh, sources yeah. that cannot be mentioned, that essentially to you edX deal is there. They did take over some of the Maryville work, but it is very explicitly a transition to them taking it in-house. It is not a long-term contract. So I'd heard very similar thing from a different set of sources. Yeah, which makes some of the, the layoffs make sense. No, I think it's one of those things, isn't it, where you know, you were saying, Phil, about whether I've got going in the new year on that. It feels like in terms of the OPM space and the online education company space, there's a sense of, you know, what's to come in the year ahead still, isn't there, with some of these, you know, announcements or the kind of place that companies find themselves in, which is which is going to be kind of interesting. I, I, I kind of noticed again in the news over here that, you know, there's there's more there's more kind of bad news in terms of deficit. University of York over here announced a deficit. It was interesting looking at their report because they they flagged a, a slight decline in their online student numbers. And maybe that's an interesting segue into, you know, I know that you guys put out a piece around enrollment trends in the US this week that we might want to kind of touch on a little bit and what, what, what we were kind of seeing there in terms of trends or anything new that came out of that. Yeah, well, the... The story, the post. There have been two on one premium, one free, but it's the the official data from uh, the Department of Education, the IPEDS data, and they have two different data sets that give distance education numbers. One is twelve month unduplicated headcounts, which, quite frankly, is more appropriate for online education as a metric. But the one they've been doing since fall two thousand twelve is the fall enrollment data, and it's built on an assumption of old style education. Students show up in September, and then you take your classes through May, and then you count them by a census method in October. So that's the data that came out. The real big benefit of this data is twofold. One, it's been consistent, so you can see historical trends. Um, So a decade now, more than a decade of distance education data has been available the other benefit is it's full. It's from the government. It's freely available. So you see it down to the institution level. You can get data. It's not just up to whoever releases the report on what they show. You know, all the data is there. So that's where we put out. And it really got into fall 2022, which, you know, more than a year out of date, if you will, But I think what's significant is that really starts showing the new normal. You know, we're past the height of the pandemic and the online enrollments that were caused by schools shutting down and forcing everybody to go remote. Fall 2022, for the most part, schools were open again. And so you start to get insight. And the headline number is the fact that this was not just a projection of previous linear growth of online education. It jumped significantly, nearly doubling if you look at it in terms of the percentage of students taking an online class compared to at least one online class, so that's fully online or just a mix, versus students who take no online classes. And it happens at the same time that overall enrollments are going down. So online students are going up, but total enrollments going down. So the picture is even more dramatic, if you will. So yeah, it was it was interesting data, but like I said, the real importance of it, I think, is we can now say, hey, let's start looking at this and say, what does this tell us that's going to be happening in the future? 
And it definitely seemed to get interest, but I was interviewed by the Heckinger Report based on that piece. The author of it, and hopefully this ends up in the article, that really hit her, and she said it very pithy, so a good reporter. She goes, what really hits me, and at a time of declining enrollments, the number of students taking at least one online class jumped by a million and a half just from 2019 to 2022. And to her, that was stunning. So I think some of this news, I think, is helping people see the the new trends and just how significant. And to separate it from some of the noise of all enrollments going down, including online, it's in aggregate, it's going up. It's just changing in nature. And what do people put that down to, Phil? Is it, you know, because there's various different narratives, isn't there, around online education? There's kind of the narrative of, of it just pure and simply being the future. But then there's also kind of wider changes that might cause people to want to study in that way, like having to balance greater kind of commitments around work and things like that, and not necessarily being able to afford a kind of a campus-based luxury experience. Well, the biggest thing I chalk it up to is the inexplicable uh, habit that uh, not everybody looks at data and thinks about it multiple times a week and tries to think about when it's <laughs> a day. I don't get those people, but they are the vast majority. Some of the thing comes from the recent narratives are that online education is going down because we're coming out of the pandemic. So I think there's a conflation of we don't have remote online teaching anymore, forced online. Therefore, the numbers naturally came down as a lot of schools started moving back to -to face-to-face. And that headline, I think, is still sticking in people's heads. Then you combine it with what we've talked about quite a bit, the OPM case and how the online market seems to be cratering. I think you have those two stories uh, that lead into where there might be people assuming that online education hit its peak and is going away without viewing the pandemic as the aberration and we're back to a new normal and, oh, look, it's higher than it was before. So to me, those that's probably what it hits. Uh, I'm not sure what you're hearing, Morgan. Yeah, you know, as you were talking, I was also just thinking about the whole high flex issue. So any opportunity to talk about high flex, Morgan, I feel like this is yours. Yes. <laughs> well, partly, you know, we're waiting on a big cage match between somebody that, that Phil and I work with quite a bit called Kevin Kelly, who who is... Uh, done a lot of work on high flex. He's got a book coming out soon, which you should all buy. But he is he is pro pro high flex, and I am intrinsically anti high flex. And maybe again, it's my personality, but I just worry that people are doing it badly. But you know, there is something there in the sense that there is a need for flexibility as well. You know, I'm just thinking about um, a conversation I had with a, a community college outside of Washington D.C. where they just said. They sort of really needed to do that sort of thing because not everybody wanted to sit on the belt line for for hours and hours and hours a week. And that gave some sort of flexibility there. So I think there's that. But I think for the most part, it does it is done badly, you know, in the sense of it's like the worst of all possible worlds. It's not in person, but it's not online. (laughs) And you sort of fall between the stools there. But, you know, I think there's definitely that desire for flexibility that 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 speaks to. And I think that feeds into the growth of online generally, because people are busy people as well and and, and, and need that ability to mix their schedules around. 
Well, I think you might have described a future episode. We'll get Kevin on online and we'll do a debate. And to, to, I don't want to speak for him holistically. He definitely agrees that it's done poorly. I think there's a difference in perspective of does that mean that we shouldn't be trying it versus, hey, schools need to support things. But that might actually be a very interesting debate to have. Yeah, no, definitely. I think um, I, I would be in favor of that because he has sort of thought carefully about it. Yeah, interesting, interesting. I have to say, I was, I was, I looked on slightly envious at your ability to be able to look at the data and actually get to a stage where you can kind of, um, kind of ascertain the the trend post pandemic. Because we in the UK usually have um, student data coming out at the end of January, but because of some changes that are taking place, that's now pushed back to April. So, you know, on the subject of people looking looking at data, sorry, I'm now having to wait a few more months before I can kind of access. Well, here in the US, we have data that comes out, you know, regularly, except we don't have uh, financial aid systems that come out in time <laughs> to actually work. So, you know, maybe they should have delayed the data and, and put out the FAFSA um, in a more timely fashion if i can have well you guys are being too kind to the ipads folks the data is supposed to come out in november and december and so i've been one of the people you know like at the holidays grandson's opening up the gifts and i'm thinking ah that should be me opening up the ipads data before now so it actually was late here although i guess i shouldn't complain that it was essentially a month month and a half late and I'm going to jump into this opportunity to to do some dirty washing of Phil Hill and Associates uh, on the podcast. You know, um, go for it. That's why we're doing. Phil may have a borderline problem with data. You know, sometimes I'm like idly wondering, yeah, it'd be interesting to look at X versus Y. You know, some really obscure piece of data, and like within minutes, it's in my inbox. <laughs> Phil has gone and, and analyzed it and charted it, and it's got things like that, which which I'm very happy about, but. Um, he uh, he he certainly is a data enthusiast. Maybe, maybe there's a group for that, you know, a, a kind of a spin on AA, Analysts Anonymous, maybe. I yeah. Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I do have to admit, I don't think it's the first date I send you when you send me a random question. I think it's like the fourth or fifth where yes. you're... So it's even worse. <laughs> yeah, where you're, I'm adding to it and you're thinking about a restraining order. I think that's where the real problem comes in. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyway, the the problems of data and analysts um, aside, I, I, I thought might be a good way to good time to kind of segue into what we were planning on talking about, which I think Morgan, you, you brought up at the end of or during last episode where we, we said that we'd, um, we'd spend a little time talking about kind of education, video conferencing, virtual classrooms. I'm not really sure what the vernacular is in the US around this kind of thing. But in the UK, probably, probably virtual classrooms is a kind of the kind of common term that we use for, I suppose, the sort of tools like Zoom and... I hear, uh, you know, colleges and university staff, faculty tend to call it video conferencing. Yeah. But uh, I think students tend to call it class quite often. It became very associated in their mind. So it's virtual class or class for students, but you also hear video conferencing, which is more the legacy term in previous generations of usage. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems like there's not necessarily one catch-all term. So, but that's the kind of broad uh, realm that we kind of we said we'd discuss. And I think just thinking about what we've talked about already in terms of the iPad iPads data, I think there's there's a similarity here in in my mind that you know certainly with the kind of 
pandemic and, you know, there's kind of Zoom university that got talked about so much, you know, I think it really brought a lot of these tools into focus and, you know, new products came on the market and maybe we'll talk about some of those, some of those things. But in a similar way, you were kind of saying, you know, the iPads data, you know, gives you a better sense of where we are post pandemic. I just wondered what, where you feel some of this, some of these technologies um, and this kind of space is after that period of, you know, really increased usage, increased focus, new products. Yeah, well, so what I've seen is, I mean, obviously Zoom, Microsoft Teams, uh, primarily those, a little bit of WebEx for people who are too stubborn to leave that tool, got heavy usage and became the default quite often. But, and what happened is people got used to it, faculty in particular. It's just like, oh, I can use this. So now you don't have the same emergency remote teaching where I'm forced to hold my class online, but it's now a tool in everybody's you know basket that they can use and it's being used. So it's not being used as heavily, but it's like a new tool that's fully accepted. But then the problem is, or one of the problems is, all of the companies from their stock price to the money they invested and their expectations, it seems like there was this view from the ed tech community of, oh, it's all going to go up. There's never going to be a COVID pullback. And so things are just on a straight line trajectory growing. So it's a very divergent from a reality that I have, that I think uh, we saw there. So as a snapshot, that's what I would describe it as Morgan. Yeah, you know, and and I think I would agree with that. Um, you know, I was I was a bit down on them at the beginning because I sort of thought, huh, you know, one they're trying to solve with technology what is essentially a pedagogy problem or a teaching problem. You know, uh, by adding additional features. You know, I I also wondered about the extent to which just Zoom and Teams would add features in. If you don't mind, I think you're now bringing in a, a bit of complexity that our listeners need to make sure we understand. Yeah, let me back up a bit. I, I sort of sort of three three core buckets of products, and 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 it'll be interesting to see if you agree or or, or push back. One is sort of add-ons to to a Zoom or a Teams or something like that. So I would put class in that because it's built on that uh, custom-built products, you know, like an Engagely or, or 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 those sort of things. And then you've got your your basic systems, your your Zoom and your Teams. So sort of three. For a while there, there were some products that were starting to build sort of analytics around collaboration, which I used to have as a sort of fourth bucket in my head. But in many ways, I don't see those around anymore. So I think you've got those sort of those three basic buckets and 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 how they work. So you've got your basic Zoom and Teams. You've got add-ons and then you've got custom products like an engagely yeah and i think i think um you know to add to that there's there's in space proximity there's minerva forums one big blue button blackboard collaborate there's a whole bunch isn't there that have kind of sprung up and even just thinking about other areas that i've kind of been involved in there's this specific conferencing tools that kind of sprung up around the pandemic around music education as well. So it's been really interesting to see. I mean, in a way, when we talked about the LMS before, we kind of slightly lamented the fact that there wasn't necessarily kind of new um, new entrants. But I just wonder really, like just thinking about the kind of question of where things stand post-pandemic, I wonder how much 
how much kind of kind of length that that they have have to go some of those kind of more specific education focused tools because i don't know what the picture is in the us but i think with with a few exceptions um i feel like the majority of the usage is focused around teams and zoom and they still have a really big share of that space although i have to confess i find some of the education focused ones quite compelling in terms of product but is 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 that kind of like generally reflective of the picture in the us are those two the big the big even even with the existence of more education focused products oh yeah and, and i think we should point out that i mean prior to the pandemic and prior to the mid 2010s you had uh, Blackboard Collaborate, which was came from Illuminate and Wimba acquisition of them years before that. You had Big Blue Button. You had you already had education specific conferencing tools, but they really were old style. Like the big, I remember one of the biggest applause lines I ever heard in a Blackboard world is when they announced that you no longer had to do a Java download and installation to make their video conferencing tool work. That was about the loudest I've ever heard the audience cheer for. So you had these cumbersome old school systems that were lightly used or used by power users. If you jump into the pandemic, what happened was, you're right, Teams and Zoom became the default period. It just completely changed the environment. And I I think that was happening already, but the pandemic, you know, the first month of the pandemic, it was just like the default is Zoom and Teams. Then class ended up buying uh, Collaborate from Blackboard, which became... uh, what's acquired by anthology. So collaborate is now owned by class. And I think they're just, uh, they're trying to migrate into a common platform. By the way, they also announced that they sit on top of teams now. I don't know if you had seen that news. So there's still a plugin, but they're a plugin for both zoom and for teams. And then you had those two products Engagely and class came out during the pandemic. And as Morgan was saying, it really was pedagogical in nature. They were education specific. They had little things like tools on engagement or on just making it easy for teachers to do what they had been doing face-to-face, but do it online. But to ask the question today in early 2024, that did not change the nature. It is Zoom and Teams are the default. And there seems to be geographic regions like teams seems to be much stronger uh, if you're a King Charles adherent, but they, but the, but those two are the default despite the introduction of these other systems. So that sort of indirectly also goes, I agree Morgan with your categorization as well. There's a difference between a plugin and a fully customized system, but that's, that's how I see it. And I think there were always sort of niche users in a way, like high-end users. So, you know, if you think about the origin of the Minerva forums, you know, a really sophisticated tool for managing online discussions. And and 2U had a a tool as well, right, that they used. Well, they were uh, sitting on top of uh, Adobe, I believe. They basically wrapped around that. So they they essentially embedded that into their learning platform with lots of customizations around that so that it 
the look and feel was pure to you, but uh, they didn't write their own, if you will, core video conferencing tool. But yeah, you know, it was that sort of high end kind of feel of around things like who's engaging, who's not engaging, you know, with the, the color coded and being able to organize the users in, in different ways. But, you know, as as the pandemic introduced everybody to more synchronous tools, you needed you got this like more people wanted into the into the system. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that those those kind of trends are, are reflected over here, because my impression kind of before the pandemic is that you know, similar to maybe what you guys were saying that there was always a virtual classroom or a video video conferencing tool around but it was it was the one thing i always felt in the kind of ed tech suite of universities that was kind of gathering the most dust shall we say <laughs> and yes. then uh pandemic hit teams zoom uh, and we had a probably a I don't know if this is is UK only or this happened in the US as well, but I think we had a bit of a move towards Zoom for institutions that were probably less familiar with that. And I think on the whole, institutions over here were less familiar with Zoom and than than Teams. But a lot of security issues then threw up, which I think just led people to to Teams, and that was already part of the infrastructure within uh, institutions. And so, it's I think it's interesting to kind of observe similar things that have happened but i just wonder what this says about general approaches to the way ed tech is i want to jump in here and, and and not derail the conversation but obviously neil has has lived a charmed life if he thinks that that video conferencing tools <laughs> were the least used because obviously he's never seen an interactive whiteboard or a video wall um, because those are the top of my list of of dumb things people buy that then gather dust or don't get used. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many campuses I've been at where they've spent more than a million dollars on a video wall that at its best is being used by students for gaming. Uh, you know, like it's it's one of those things that just don't get used and people intend, insist on buying. But okay, back to no, your... No, if you, no, no, no. If you're going to interrupt, I've got to interrupt too. Let's not equate Zoom and Teams by any stretch of the imagination. This will be opinionated. But no, Zoom is the thing that changed the game. Zoom suddenly made video conference. Oh, anybody can do... My grand... Well, not my grandparents. They're dead. It was not that effective. My parents <laughs> and my in-laws could use this. We could do video calls during the pandemic, during lockdown. It was so easy and so reliable, even with the massive ramp up and scale. Zoom is the tool that changed the whole game. Microsoft is everywhere. And Microsoft made Teams sort of good enough that you could still use it, but it was built around the security model. It's like Teams is great if you can get into the conference and start using it. Whereas Zoom was great because anybody could do it. So they're very different in approach. And anytime I see a meeting invitation and it's Teams, I'm like, oh, geez, I know I'm not going to be able to get in. It's going to it's an external group inviting me. Somebody forgot to set it up. It, it, it's completely different, whereas Zoom just works. Now, having said that, I think a difference in the U.S. and the U.K., we definitely saw the security issues, Zoom bombing, you know, people getting involved in classes they shouldn't. And a lot of schools wanted people to shift to Teams. So, like, I worked with one university where they had a Microsoft account, and then they made 
teams available to everybody. But in reality, not just classes, but most of the uh, project meetings kept happening on Zoom. So you ended up with this parallel team and Zoom usage where users wanted to use Zoom. The schools wanted to push a lot of people to teams. And in the U.S., I don't know the exact market share, but I think uh, here much more Zoom has remained the default, despite the attempt for people to say, let's move to Teams for security reasons. Whereas in Canada and the U.K. in particular, I think there truly was a shift over to Teams. So I, I think that the I think we maybe it's the U.S. The U.S. diverged from other English-speaking areas. So that's what I saw. But we need to be careful not to say they're the same thing, in my opinion. But obviously, there's a, there's a, a feature request. If anybody from, from Zoom is listening, a feature request, please make it possible for us to speak with our dead relatives and friends. Um, yeah. <laughs> then you'll have a real winner. <laughs> that, that's an AI feature we haven't covered before, I think. But um, maybe that's one for another episode. <laughs> um, yeah, you make a good point, Phil. You make a good point. And I think, uh, I guess you guys probably similar to me spend a decent amount of your time on either Zoom or Teams. And I similarly have a, a preference for, for Zoom. But I think that was probably another thing that kind of came through in the pandemic, that kind of slight Zoom versus Teams, even though I acknowledge your point about them being different. There was definitely that, that side of things. But I, I just... You know, I'm kind of interested in what, you know, what's happened around video conferencing, what that says about the way in which universities develop their ed tech stacks. Because, you know, we this might be a bit unfair to characterize. You've got Teams, the safe option, Zoom, the one that's probably more user-friendly. You've got then other products that we've mentioned, like Engagely, like InSpace Proximity, like Class Technologies that are kind of... You know, their pitches were designed for education, but arguably maybe those are trying to difficult. They're finding it difficult maybe to get traction within higher education, perhaps we might say. I just wondered what you think all of that stuff put together says about the way in which universities go about developing the ed tech that they use primarily. Before Phil comes with a serious answer, I've got a I've got a, a semi-serious answer. But one of the most useful things I ever come came across was a blog post that somebody at Gartner managed to get past the Gartner guards um, on, on April Fool's Day some years ago, where they did the real magic quadrant. So, you know, magic quadrant, it's, it's, it's execution and vision. This was execution and vision. And then they just labeled the different quadrants. So one was uh, labeled, don't buy this, bottom left-hand corner, top right-hand corner was buy this. Bottom right-hand corner was what you wanted to buy, and top left-hand corner was what your boss wants you to buy, and that was <laughs> that speaks to a fundamental truth. You know, you've got what your boss wants you to buy and what you want to buy, and you're caught in that tension. And and I think that's where uh, some of the you know the safe versus versus usable kinds yeah. of things. Yeah, I, I know certainly instances in the UK in which the the procurement of Zoom was led by faculty really wanting it because they didn't want to use teams like they, that definitely happened in the uk but but you guys are more compliant so the end result was less uh well a sticking with zoom i think you saw grind them down in the end maybe is the okay. I, I don't <laughs> know <right>, persistence <laughs> all right so going back to your question what does it say about ed tech is it forced ed tech to get over itself i mean the previous generation of tools were awful 
they were hard to use. They didn't have the hard to use or the secure locked up and might not have been uh, video walls, but they weren't getting used for a reason. And so March 2020, we got rid of that assumption. And so it was a positive in my mind that ed tech world, and I'm talking about institutions, faculty, uh, administrators, accepted these third-party non-education tools as a core part of their usage and acknowledged these are better for, for what we need. And we just got over the scalability issues. And it, it, there's a new set of tools that's much more useful. The second thing is that I think on a positive vein, with online education, we were getting stuck too much in this mind that asynchronous is the way to do it. Thoughtfully designed online education is asynchronous. And not just sort of asynchronous, fully asynchronous. And we looked down our noses at anything that had a synchronous element. Part of what we learned during the pandemic is the big weakness of online education, the Achilles heel in my mind, is engagement. Faculty to student, student to student, knowing people, have, you know, feeling like you belong, all these types of things, the ability to ask questions easily. And there was a realization, oh my goodness, all I have to do is, I don't need to lecture on Zoom, but if I simply have office hours on Zoom, that opens up a whole new world. Students feel like they belong. They can, they're, and it helps with time management as well. So I think it injected the need or the opportunity to use synchronous elements within an asynchronous course to make it more engaging. So what does it say about EdTech? Uh, yeah, it took a pandemic, but EdTech accepted general tools that were better than what we had been producing and truly used them. And I also think it's positive that we're getting past the asynchronous only mentality and that we're trying to figure out what's appropriate. How do we mix different modalities together within a course to help out with the design? So there, I've taken the positive lens on this for the record. Yeah, it was interesting, the point you made around the, I, I guess the way I always describe it is that kind of orthodoxy that uh, around online education in terms of how it's done. And it was, I guess, I, I, probably a trap I fell into as well, that you had on one side, you know, people finding their way who didn't really have necessarily the kind of knowledge base or the experience to, you know, to teach online. And then you had people who'd worked in online preaching from the rooftops about the way it should be done yes. and the fact that is, you know, this isn't online. And I think probably that slightly went over the top in terms of slightly. Well, yeah, slightly. I, I get that's British understatement for you again. Okay. Phil, sorry. <laughs> we're, we're, we're understanding each other as, as, as episodes go on. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, I think that's an, in, that's an interesting one, but just going back to, you know, some of the products in the space, I, I guess in a way I've sort of like tacitly characterized some of the newer education focus products as kind of struggling. Do you, do you see that? Do you see that they're struggling to gain traction? Is that a fair characterization? Like what, what advice would you give to those companies if that is the, if that is the kind of correct characterization? I'll jump in, but I suspect Morgan and I differ. So I want to state, state something that may get her reaction to it. I lament 
the fact that these companies are in trouble. I think that the tools that class engagely in space, those three in particular, but there are others as well, I think they have some outstanding educational features that if used more often would encourage and nudge faculty to rethink how they design a course and truly make it more engaging. So I lament the fact that they're not catching on. And I think the nature of it not catching on is twofold. One is ed tech not truly being enough about pedagogy. But number two, the whole investment assumptions behind it, that these will grow to infinity. But so I lament that they're not getting used much. But Morgan, it sounded like you might have had a, you at least started out with a more negative view on them. Yeah, you know, I, I thought they were interesting and, and, and good and, and, and were able to sort of nudge people towards some better things. Um, I, I did wonder about a couple of things. One was, you know, trying to build into a pedagogy the way that build into a technology is something that really needs to be thought about beforehand. So more of a design issue. I also just want to throw something out there in the sense that I know of one situation and, and at, where folks were using one of these higher end tools, you know, with more engagement built in. It was a small class. It was um, a small master's degree class. And one of the students came in drunk and took off all his clothes in the course of the, (laughs) all of the, in the course of the class. And the professor didn't notice. (laughs) So, so even (laughs) a small class using one of these higher end things, obviously maybe they need to build in a a nakedness, uh, (laughs) awareness the button or something i think that's called an edge case isn't it (laughs) maybe (laughs) i'm mistress of the edge case but you know so the other thing i think going on here you know something that i wondered about in the sense that class in particular was heavily focused on k-12 and higher ed has this fussiness where they don't want to buy something that is bought by k-12 you know it's sort of like the groucho marks kind of thing they don't want to be part of any any club that that would accept them so you know i think i think that's sort of going on there and then you know it's it's also another tool you know you've got you've got zoom which you maybe use for a meeting and then you've got to go to this other system to use for for, for for class and it's it's both cost and hassle i was talking to one of the uh, to somebody a friend from one of the ad, lms vendors vle vendors and uh, we were talking about i'm glad that i'm not having to deal with what class and engagely are going through right now listening to their investors who are saying hey i thought this would be taken over the world by now we gave you tons of money even though, and I still maintain, there are some great, there are some great designs in those tools. And the way uh, this colleague responded was interesting. He goes, he goes, yeah, I'm glad I work for a technology that's required LMS, and I'm glad I don't work for a technology that might be beautiful, but it's completely optional. You know, it's and and an add-on to something I'm already paying for. And I think that's part of the issue is. The world, the colleges and universities already accepted, hey, we all have to have Team or Zoom or occasionally WebEx. And now you're saying we need yet another layer? We can handle this one change, not two changes. And I think that was that was part of it uh, as far as I've seen. And I, I don't know that we can write them off. I'm just saying it's it's got to be difficult for them, especially compared to expectations. 
Yeah, and it, I mean, you guys make some interesting points. I think the K-12 point is an interesting one because I guess there's a, it feels like there's more online schools in that space in the UK, but but it doesn't feel like that's necessarily a big market. But I think one of the things in terms of the features of some of these products that feels like it's more K-12 focused, but feels like it's a bit of more of a jarring fit for higher education is is more of the the features around, you know, the students zoning out or something like that. It feels like that culturally is more on that kind of surveillance, uncomfortable area for for higher education, I think. You mean, so the ability to show like red, green, um, yellow in terms of this student hasn't spoken up in a long time, or are you even talking about like the video, you know, they're not paying attention? Yeah, all of those features that are essentially around gauging students' attentiveness and like engagement, it feels like, you know, my hunch is that that is a feature that's more readily um, accepted in K twelve than it is. That's in, a good point in in higher education. But the, I, I'm the same as you, Phil. To be honest, I, I think you know some of these products have some really good features and they sort of take video conferencing on a bit further in terms of education and it's it's a shame that we are where we are but like you say you know a lot of the kind of pandemic hype around ed tech has kind of played a, a role in that i mean there have been there seems like there have been instances in which universities have um gone in on the products i think um was it southern new hampshire who use in space yes and coventry here in the uk uh, use Engagely. So, you know, I, I'm interested in terms of the potential, you know, on, in the context of online education growing, whether, you know, universities will, will go out on a bit more of a limb to, you know, adopt some of these technologies to sort of slightly differentiate their, their experience. Um, but in the UK, for sure, I think there's also been a bit of a move towards consolidation. So, um, there's an organization in the UK called Usizer who does surveys on stuff um, around ed tech in institutions. And, you know, one of the messages, I think, on one of their more recent ones was just, we need to bring all of this, you know, array of tools. We need to kind of cut that down and bring them into the center to manage. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I will... All right, so I'll uh, take Morgan's role and interject Gartner wisdom into our podcast. <laughs> but I hope, I think the best case is that we're dealing with a very compressed hype cycle around these tools mm-hmm. that very rapidly, even before the pandemic, but then particularly in 2021, the hype around video conferencing just got out of control. Now we're down into financial reality in particular, and you know we're in the trial of disillusionment, including should these even exist, and who, is anybody using them? And is, you know, there's there's real problems. The best case is is that we'll now get back into the plateau of productivity, not as high as the hype, but we'll now start integrating some of the education specific tools. And if it's, you know, class engagedly and in space or some of the discipline specific ones, I hope we keep some of those really good designs and slowly integrate them and change the whole field moving forward. So I think best case argument is we're just living through this uh, this hype cycle within a couple of years in this case. 
Yeah, and I, I guess in a way, those product developments aren't, you know, aren't going to probably be lost to time, but maybe they'll be adopted into some of the more main players. But yeah, that's that's great. I think that's been a really interesting discussion. Um, thank you guys, um, and yeah, it'd be interesting to see whether some of those ones that we've kind of uh, lamented where their current position is, how they, um, how they kind of end up as the year goes on. But um, yeah. We might even have a follow-up podcast uh, in a year to see, did we see slow but steady realistic adoption? Yeah, we could have a where are they now virtual classrooms. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, uh, yeah, this has been great. And I I know a lot of schools are asking or thinking about these subjects. And uh, yeah, it's an interesting field that I hope uh, changes over time. But it's great seeing you all. And uh, we look forward to our discussion next week as well. 